Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Mark Polymeropoulos, who's a former senior intelligence officer from the CIA, and we'll be discussing his fantastic book, Clarity in a Crisis. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please do leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction the show gets, the more listeners it attracts. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. Also, you can join us on Twitter. You can directly interact with me by going to at Secrets and Spies. And lastly, you can watch my short spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which was my first attempt at original spy fiction. It's now available on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It comes in, I think, around about $2.99. So, without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Mark, can you just please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you can of your career in the CIA? Sure. So, you know, I I speak uh, a lot in in public. So actually, there's quite a lot I can say. You know, the CIA has something called the Publications Review Board. So so amazingly enough, a lot about my career, a lot of these war stories, everything has been vetted and cleared by the agency. People always ask about that. So I'm not going to spill any secrets today, but there's a lot (laughs) we can talk about. But, uh, you know, as far as as me, I, I worked 26 years. Uh, at the CIA, I retired in you know what's called the Senior Intelligence Service, so that's the equivalent of uh, you know general officer rank in the military. Hmm. Um, most of my time, I was spent in the Middle East, uh, in places I can't say, but ultimately a lot of time in, in conflict zones, Iraq and Afghanistan. I can talk about that. Uh, and then the last two years of my career, which I thought would be easy, but turned out to be fascinating, I was the chief of operations, chief of clandestine operations for what we call the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center. So that's you know, Turkey, Ukraine, Russia, all these really easy topics. <laughs> yes. People, uh, you know, I, I thought I thought it was going to have kind of an easy run of things, but, you know, turned out to be quite interesting in the last two years under a, a very unique president. I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. There was also you you were involved with the um, obviously what people talk about or describe as Havana syndrome. I don't know if there's anything you want to mention a little bit about. Sure, that. You know, it's, yeah. Right. That's, you know, that's, uh, you know, I, you know, it's, when I wrote my book, um, Clarity and Crisis, and when I, you know, when I talk about leadership, I, I don't mention that because I try to separate the principles on leadership that, that I really believed into what happened to me at the end of my career. But, but, you know, it's, it's certainly been out a lot. And I've, I've, I've become an advocate for, for some of the victims uh, in terms of obtaining health care. But in essentially in December of 2017, I made a trip to Moscow as again, as a senior official uh, at CIA. And I was, I was hit by something. Um, which started this kind of terrible journey of trying to obtain health care. And ultimately, I believe, as as you see this happening continuously, you know, in the press today, or you see reports of it, that I was hit by something when I was there. And it's caused me, you know, terrible headaches and vertigo and a lot of 
um, a lot of, uh, you know, health issues um, mm-hmm. that I try to work through. But that was, you know, unfortunately, um, kind of the beginning of the end of my career. I retired at 50 after 26 years at, at a retirement age, but I certainly had more in the tank and I would have stuck around for many more years if this hadn't happened. Yeah, and no, I was very sorry to hear about that. I mean, are you, how are you doing these days? Because I know it's sort of affected you quite a bit. No, I have, I, you know, I have a headache right now. I have a headache. You know, it's mm. been four years of, of headaches. Now, I've been treated at, at you know, Walter Reed's um, Traumatic Brain Injury Center. And, you know, Walter Reed is, a, is the U.S. military's premier um, hospital, and they have a, a center for traumatic brain injury. They've had so much experience with blast victims. But I, as well as many others who have been afflicted by Havana Syndrome, are getting treated there. And it's, a, it's helped me tremendously um, because it's a place where the, their whole kind of existence is designed to try to find you ways that you can cope to feel better. Um, and so while I still have the headaches, I'm kind of in a much better place than I was, you know, uh, when I first went there, which was uh, back in January of this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for that, Mark. So um, I was going to ask you sort of what led you to write your your book, Clarity in a Crisis, which I found really fascinating because I, I don't know if you know, I'm a, I'm a freelance director. And um, so I, I work with lots of random teams in high stress situations to oh, yeah. deliver a project in a very short space of time. And I'm always looking at books and things to try and be a better leader. And there's a lot of interesting things in your book. So I, I wanted to ask you really what kind of led to this book being created. So this was this was such a, a kind of a, a, an amazing journey for me because um, you know I, I spent two plus decades at CIA and I learned from a lot of adversity and 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 I learned from failing. So this is not a book where you know I have a lot of friends in the special operations community and they get mad at me. My Navy SEAL friends get mad when I say, hey, you know, I'm not going to get up and pound my chest and say let's charge the hill or because um, this book I think was more realistic because I, I wrote a book. Uh, based on leadership principles that I learned kind of from the streets of the third world, but based on failing a lot, based on a lot of adversity, yeah. based on, you know, adhering to principles that I really believe in, which, you know, include, I think the most important for an intelligence officer, which is humility. And so what I found was, you know, as CIA case officers and operations officers, a lot of time we spend alone, uh, you know, making decisions. So you get used to operating in this gray area. And, uh, and so at the end of my career, my contention is leaders are not born, they're actually made. By the end of my career, I was really good at decision making um, in that period where you have a lack of situational awareness in that gray. Um, and it became my happy place. But there's a reason behind that. And I kind of dissected it when writing the book. And I came up with these principles that ultimately you know, allows for, for individuals. And this is certainly appropriate in the private sector as well as the public sector, but allows them to, to kind of find that, that comfort zone um, when times are tough. And guess what? You know, like, Look at the times we're living in right now. I mean, I certainly didn't I didn't write this book. I started writing it when I retired. COVID wasn't around. A pandemic that hadn't affected the world was around. So it's pretty extraordinary that that the world has faced this incredible crisis. Um, but again, it's the idea of being being comfortable in that gray zone. And, and you're, you find you know you raise your hand and you say, "Send me. I'm good here." And when others want to flee, um, you're comfortable there. And it's a uh, you know it's uh, it really it, it took a long time for me to get there, but I did, and I wanted to write a book about it. Yeah, no, fantastic, fantastic. So in your book, you describe life as an operations officer, and you kind of describe it as it's not a job, it's a calling and a lifestyle. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So, you know, so so again, a CI operations officer, I'm gonna, whatever I'm going to say today is, is certainly, I know this, is the, is the, with your audience knows this, this is not a secret, but, you know, we don't work during the day. Intelligence officers work at night. You know, and so, you know, my my job as, a, as an operations officer is, you know, you spot, assess, develop, handle and recruit spies, agents. Mm. And I always have to throw every, you know, every one of these discussions I have. A CI officer is not an agent. An agent is a spy. 
who we recruit from a foreign country. So your job essentially uh, uh, was was at night, either you know, maybe meeting an agent, um, maybe going and looking for them at, at events, diplomatic receptions, um, you know, anywhere. You're overturning rocks. You're trying to find you know individuals who want to work for your country. Uh, maybe you're maybe you're conducting you know counter surveillance on another operational meeting, but but ultimately it's it's a job that doesn't end at 5 p.m. And, and so I, I say that in, in one sense, you know, uh, we work a lot. But the other is that the amount of responsibility we have is extraordinary. And I tell a story in the book just about what the what that feeling of responsibility is like, because, you know, an agent is someone who's agreed to betray their country for the United States or for, you know, in whatever uh, country the intelligence service is working for. But but ultimately, you know, I, ha- I as a young officer, you know, had someone's life in my hands. And that's extraordinary. That's not normal. Yeah. You know, that, and that's that's my daily existence is. And, and I tell a story in the book about uh, an, an agent I was training. Uh, you know, in fact, we were, we were, I was training him in Europe to go back into the Middle East. So we were in the, in the benign country. We're on the streets of Europe. I'm training him on surveillance detection techniques and other things which are important for him to stay alive uh, as we go back into a country in the Middle East, which was a critical kind of counterintelligence threat. So we had to be really good at our tradecraft. But he takes me aside and he says, Mark, you know, I know that, you know, you're going to think of me maybe once or twice a month when we actually meet. Uh, and, and he said, I know you have other duties um, in your job, but but he, this is this is the, the agent talking. He goes, but for me, I'm going to think about you every day because if you make one mistake, not only am I going to die, but my whole family, my tribe is going to die. So I need you to be perfect. I need you to take this so seriously because your life, uh, my life is in your hands. And I was I was blown away by this concept. Um, and that's the essence of our job, the, the relationship we as an operations officer, as a case officer, have with our agents. You know, the, the sanction on failure is pretty huge. And so to me, when I say you know, it's not a nine to five job, you know, we work at night, you work late, sometimes you travel a lot. And then you have this staggering responsibility uh, that, a, that a human being is putting in you. And if, you know, if that's not a definition of an unusual line of work, I don't know what <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I was, just as you were describing that, I was just thinking of um, the first ever factual spy book that I read was Next Stop Execution by Oleg Gordievsky. Um, and he goes into great detail, obviously, about what it was like being under suspicion. And if any of the um, MI6 officers who helped get him out of the country had made a mistake, he would have been gone. He would have been shot That's back it. in the back of the head. Yeah, you got it. And, 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 and so and you take that seriously. I mean, you know, so, it, you know, it takes a lot to get into CIA. There's a lot of vetting involved. A lot of background checks, and and you know it's it's a very careful selection process. But ultimately, it's because you have what it takes to, to keep another human being alive, and you take that really seriously. Um, and so, you know, to me, that was that relationship we had with another human being was extraordinary. I I, I would call it a psych, psychology five hundred one class, not a you know not a one hundred one class. That's your graduate school class mm. because you know someone is actually looking at you, saying you're going to keep me alive. And 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 by the way, you know. When, it, when an agent, you know, decides to spy, let's say for the United States, you, you don't go to CIA headquarters. You don't meet a lot of people. This is based on a relationship you had with a case officer who may have recruited you or picks up on handling. But that's your only lifeline. And so just that human, that human to human contact, I always found that extraordinary. Um, it's what I cherish the most. And unfortunately, you know, when I got promoted high up in the organization, I stopped handling agents. And then my life is, is all budget and resources and personnel. Not so fun. Yeah, yeah. No, fun enough. As a filmmaker is interested in espionage, I think that's the bit that interests me the most is that relationship between the case officer and the agent, and that kind of that bond of trust in a world of mistrust. I've always found that really fascinating. 
Well, you know, and, and we could talk for probably a whole session on literature, Hollywood, media, you know, all the things about espionage. But, but one of, you know, there's, I think there's a, a really interesting movie that it's based on the John Le Carre book, The Little Drummer Girl. But, mm. you know, John Le Carre was always very good at talking, you know, describing that relationship. But if you, if you watch the movie, even The Little Drummer Girl, it talks about an Israeli intelligence operation, but a really extraordinary relationship between a, a case officer and an agent. And so that's the kind of stuff that I, I found just so compelling and interesting because here's the other thing, too. We're talking about this agent you know, talking to me about the responsibility I had. I'm a human being too. So I go home at night and I worry, hey, am I going to, am, am I going to be good enough to keep this person alive? You know, is my tradecraft, is, you know, all the things I was trained to do, am I going to be good enough? And that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty weighty for, for a young officer. And mm-hmm. you get, you know, you get better at it over the years, but you never have that feeling that, uh, or you never, it never escapes you that, that someone's life is in your hands. Yeah, not bad, not bad. Well, let's talk a bit about your book. And I want to ask about what sort of great leadership looks like to you. So what does great leadership look like to me? So, so it's in the book, so, you know, I, I, there's a couple of things I, I did in the book. And this is not the leadership principle, but I kind of define great leadership mm. um, as the art of willing those around you to conduct activities that are, that are righteous. So they have to be legal, you know, legal, ethical and moral, really important because, you know, amazing, you know, this is the intelligence business. So there's all this murky gray, but there really isn't. Mm. It's got to be righteous. It has to be it has to be legal. It's got to be. So that's number one. Number two, I, I, I talk about it. it's got to be difficult. So we're not having this conversation. I'm not writing this book about, you know, leadership when times are easy, you know, for example. So um, it's got to be, you know, it's not an everyday chore and, and it's got to be out of your comfort zone. So that's what great leadership would be. Third, it would be selfless, really important. You know, don't ask others to do what you you would not. And then the last is uh, I think it's communicable, um, meaning it's, it's got to be easy to explain. Uh, it's got to be it's got to be infectious. And and then and then, you know, I think about in my career and I talk about one individual in my book, a guy by the name of, of Charlie Seidel, mm-hmm. uh, who's passed away now, uh, was one of the CIA's most legendary Arabs, you know, beautiful Ar- Arabic speaker, actually grew up in the Middle East. His dad was in the intelligence business. And Charlie was incredible. He was as, as comfortable in the palaces and the halls of, of power in, you know, Amman or Cairo or, or Riyadh as he would be on the street talking to a street sweeper, or a taxi driver. But but the beauty of Charlie was his relationship with his officers, with us, because um, he cared about us so much. And, you know, I, I tell a story in the book when, I, you know, Charlie was our first chief of station in Baghdad after, after the U.S. invasion. Um, and him and I were there. We actually went in with the U.S. military, with, with Naval Special Warfare. And after about six months there, I came back and I had really, I had really bad uh, PTS, post-traumatic stress. Um, I, was, I was seeing dead bodies. I was having nightmares and sleeping. And and my wife um, contacted him mm-hmm. when we were back in the States. And he arranged, this is, and this is because he knew I was having a tough time. He arranged for the, the whole original team from Baghdad to meet at his cottage in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And for two weeks, so family members, everything. For two weeks, we all gathered. We got together. This is after an incredible six months of, you know, really high, you know, you know high intensity work. But he did this because he thought it would help me. And it really did. And so when I talk about great leaders, they not only believe in their people, they care for their people. And I think that's, boy, that's a, that's a far cry from when I first joined the CIA, which is, which, you know, back in 1993 was much more kind of a rigidly, you know, militaristic organization. But, but I think Charlie really, even though he was from a different generation, but he understood that you got to take care of your people. And, um, and that's what I always tried to do uh, in my role as a leader. Yeah, no, it's great. One interesting thing that's just popped into my head during your career, I suppose the business of espionage has changed a bit because obviously you, you um, ended up in a war zone, which is not something that's kind of typical for a CIA officer, is it? 
Well, it's, it's, you know, of course, and, and it changed 9-11. Um, so, so September 11th changed everything for a lot of people. I spent almost three years in conflict zones after 9-11 away from my, from my family. So that's not something I expected. Uh, you know, it's also, it's something that as, as, you know, as patriots, we all certainly eagerly signed up to do, but, but I wasn't in the military. I was recruited by the CIA right out of Cornell university out of, out of graduate school. And, you know, I, I remember finding myself in early 2002, Sitting on a in Kandahar, Afghanistan, on uh, you know, sitting on on top of you know a mud hut, and you know one of the it was a Navy SEAL, and he and, and you know it was a joint agency U.S. military team, and he comes up to me with a you know an AT4 weapon, it's an anti tank weapon. He says, "Hey, if anyone comes at us, point and shoot." And I was like, "Hold on a second, <laughs> wait a second, what the hell is this thing?" <laughs> and so and 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 we kind of worked through it, but it just. It goes to show, and then so much more of my career was involved working with with the special operations community, uh, and I got good at it. But I wasn't trying to play commando. You know, my job was to I, I had agent networks that that, for example, would put uh, would would find uh, you know high value targets, whether it's in Iraq or Afghanistan or other places. So, you know, it's it, it was a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I got there. But but certainly everything changed after nine eleven. We spent a lot more time in, in conflict zones. I spent a lot of time in traditional, you know, locations as well, working out of U.S. facilities, you know, embassies mm. um, in the Middle East. But certainly, uh, I, I never expected I spent almost three years, you know, uh, kind of rolling around the the, the dirt uh, in the sandbox. Um, but but honestly, you know, it was incredibly rewarding because I felt like we did a lot of good. Um, and and you know, there's there's obviously a lot of discussion now about Afghanistan and and, a, and two decade war. But from this from my perspective as a CIA officer, and I did counterterrorism most of my career. You know, we certainly helped prevent another attack um, on the homeland, and of course, working with our you know allies, you know, particularly in Europe, um, you know, protecting further attacks because you know Europe had, had a really bad spate of mm. uh, of terrorist attacks over the years. And so, I think that we did a lot of good, um, and so I'm I'm actually proud of, of of the service that I I certainly did in Afghanistan. I went there twice. I spent you know early on for a bit, and then I, then I spent a year as a base chief. 2011 or 2012 in eastern Afghanistan. Well, thank you very much, that Mark. Your book is sort of broken down into uh, nine core concepts, and so I want to go through those concepts with you. So the sure, sure. so the first concept is um, what is the glue guy, and oh, sure. why is is that an important concept? Well, I, I love this uh, this concept because this, so so again, I have nine principles, mm. and all of them build on each other. So this one is basic, but this is everything's going to be really relatable. So this is the idea. That, that as a leader, you have to identify identify and cultivate uh, the indispensable members of your team. Mm. Um, and they're not going to be your all-stars. They're not going to be your rock stars. You know, so I, I, I can make a million references to baseball. We can talk about English Premier League football. I mean, I, I can go on and on. It's not, you know, it's not Mo Salah from Liverpool. But ultimately, this is really important because you learn as a leader that the success you have is not going to be from those, you know, if it's a Navy SEAL platoon, not the one kicking the door in. If it's a C in the CIA, it's not me as a case officer, the tip of the spear. Who are those people who are indispensable? And so, you know, I give this talk to a lot of, you know, lots of different groups. So, so for example, I did it literally to a group of, of administrators at a, uh, uh, at a local county teachers union. And I said, who are your glue guys and glue gals? And they said, well, it's not the teachers on the front line. It's, the IT personnel. And so you kind of, you, you can go, but, but it's, it's really important for two reasons. One is the success of the team. You have to reward those individuals. It is absolutely critical um, uh, because they are just as important. But number two, in your planning, you have to, you have to include them. And, and I'll never forget in my role as running CIA stations and bases, you know, I, I, you know, in the beginning of my career, I would gather the operations officers together. We're going to go try to recruit a Russian 
you know, military officer. Got it. Um, but guess what I did at the end of my career? In those planning sessions, I'd get our, our support personnel, our finance personnel. You can't run operations without money. I got to know how much money we have to do. So, you know, and so, and but these are indispensable members of your team. And so to me, it was, it was you know, it, it's really critical. And, and then, you know, I love telling kind of these, these war stories from my time at, at the CIA. And, and I'll, you know, I'll never forget uh, uh, when I was in Afghanistan, our job and my job, but, but, but really the role of the base was to hunt for Al-Qaeda and Taliban senior leadership. I value targets. We had a very successful operation. We're having kind of this big celebration. And I realized, well, wait a second, we're missing some folks. So we go get our the cooks, literally, and well, this is a remote base, the, the, kind of a secret that I'll tell you and your, your, your audience is that CIO is great chefs, great cooks. We have great food. You know, it, this is just, you know, the U.S. military knows this because they're always trying to sneak onto our bases. <laughs> uh, but ultimately, I bring in these cooks. They're not even Americans. Hmm. But as we're celebrating the success Hey, guess what? These, you know, if, if we're not fed right, and, and when you're in a remote base, it's not only getting fed right, but if you're not getting, you know, if, if the food is not clean, if you're not healthy, we're there for a year. It's really important. And so as, as I brought these individuals into our secure facility, some of the other members of my team were like, hey, what are you doing? These people aren't clear. And I said, doesn't matter. We're not talking anything, you know, sensitive. We're going to celebrate mm. the success of an operation. But you know what? The cooks in the back, in the rear are just as important. And everyone's got to understand that. And so- you know, to the, the principle of the glue guy, and I got to say, or the glue gal, to me is a uh, is a uh, it's just so fundamental to um, what you should what should you practice as a leader. But but interestingly enough, I didn't do that at the beginning of my career. Mm-hmm. I did it at the end of my career, and I think that's what I want to pass on to to folks. You know, especially you know maybe in junior leadership positions, think early on this um, because it can it can you know it, you, you know your team is going to be such a more of a high you know high performance highly functioning unit um, if you if you practice this. Quick food question: Any popular yeah. dishes in CIA stations? <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, no, in CIA stations, well, you know, I mean, anytime you get a good steak, that's uh, that, that's pretty good. One of uh, one of the one of the key things about CIA headquarters when I was there is on Thursday they had turkey for lunch, mm. turkey mashed potatoes, stuffing, and gravy. They did that for my entire career, so it was Turkey Thursdays. So everyone <laughs> would get really excited. But then, you know, towards the end of my career, they started bringing more fast food, and they brought a Five Guys burger chain and. And then so people kind of gravitated towards that. But I, it was the uh, the, the turkey dinners. Uh, I'm sorry, turkey lunches at, uh, at CIA. One, one, here's, here's a crazy uh, uh, anecdote. This, you know, the CIA obviously employs a lot of people. In the cafeteria one day, I'm walking through the cafeteria and I see someone. And he's dressed in a suit that I recognize as someone I went to university with. And, and he went, Cornell University has an excellent hotel school. And they, you know, and, but he, and so he graduated from that. He was the food and beverage manager at CIA headquarters. I had never known. And he didn't know where I was working. He looked at me. He's like, what are you doing here? And I said, what are you doing here? So what a small world. Yeah, but the fact great. that a Cornell Hotel graduate was uh, was helping run CIA's cafeteria is a good sign. Excellent. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> well, thank you for that. No, I mean, food is very important with teams. You know, um, on film shoots and stuff, food is incredibly important because people are working hard and it's just a little something, isn't it? It's, it's, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you not. I'm sure your listeners will love these war stories. So, so we were prepping to go into Iraq, and I was with Naval Special Warfare, and and we were in a, a Middle Eastern country, and I was getting sick of eating MREs. So I called the embassy, and I had them deliver this huge Arabic spread to us at this remote base camp. And and boy, that was smart of me because I was then a hero to all the naval the Navy SEALs who I was with. They were like, if these CIA guys can get us good food, they're all right. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, oh, that was cool. <laughs> 
<laughs> have you have you read there's a cia cookbook are you familiar with it yes yes it's uh it's called spies what's it spies lies mango pie something like that it's it's something a, like that yeah yeah no i, I need to that. yeah no it's such a good book and i wanted i did at some point i've got this ambition to do a special on it i need to figure out who to reach <laughs> out to <laughs> but it does it's, there's some great stories in that book there's some really good stories in that book well i mean you know the, the fact is that that one of the great things is that you know we serve all over the world mm. And so, and this is what I tell young officers all the time is that, you know, so, so people say, you know, you know, I, I say, when you join the CIA, you have to love, you have to have a thirst for knowledge. You have to want to learn other languages, but that means language, culture, religion, people, food, just because you embrace all of that. And I would joke with, with, you know, new candidates. I said, if you want to, if you want to hang out with Americans, go join the FBI, but you know what, you're hanging out with, with other, other people and cultures and you, you know, and by the way, a, 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 a great CIA case officer is never going to sit at a base or an embassy, or you know, uh, or anything like that. I, we want you on the street. You have to immerse yourself in other cultures. So it, it totally makes sense to me that people will leave. Uh, you know, at the end of their careers, will have some some great recipes um, from yeah. all their time. You know, <laughs> serving all over the planet. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for that. So the the next concept is adversity is a performance enhancing drug to success. Right. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? So you know, I, I think the easiest way to think about this. Um, is that you've got to taste rock bottom first in order to succeed. And, and that's just my contention. Uh, uh, you know, and that's going to be your super fuel and how you grow. But you, you have to fail, mm. you know, and, and so that's what, you know, in, you know, great, really high performing units will have, will have failed at some point. Now you learn from that. It's not failure, but you learn from failing and that's how you, that's how you grow. Um, and, and then only when you, when you find that failure, will you find eventual success when times are tough and, I mean, you know, I can I can give so many different examples, but you know, think Michael Jordan was cut from his, uh, you know, his high school basketball team as a sophomore. He did okay as a basketball player after that. I mean, we can talk, you know, a million different sports analogies, um, but but ultimately, I think you see that with high performing um, outfits, you will have gone through some some types of adversity because that's how you learn. Um, you know, that's how you grow, and, and to me, that's uh, you know, it's actually it's absolutely critical. You know, I, I you know I, I look back on my career. Kind of two things. I talk about this in the book. Two things come to mind. Um, one is, you know, we were running. I was running an agent uh, in in, uh, in northern Iraq. Um, I was living up with the Kurds in, in late 2002 in the mountains of northern Iraq before, of course, before the invasion. Mm-hmm. And we had recruited someone who was giving us what we call order of battle information, which is the disposition of Iraqi uh, military forces. This is the old regime of Iraqi President uh, Saddam Hussein. And this individual, I was handling this individual. He's given us, he was giving us good stuff, but I was, a, I was a young officer, and 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 I was pushing him too hard because ultimately the frequency of meetings can can give you more information. But the more you meet, the more chance you have of getting caught. Mm. It's kind of just the, that's that's part of the intelligence business, as you know. And so ultimately, he was he was caught, he was uh, tortured and executed, and and I never forgot that because you know uh, you know uh, uh, it's it's on me to kind of set the pace of the meetings. Um, and, and I probably pushed him a little too far. Uh, and now of course he has a say in it too. And, mm. and, and so as, as we kind of, as I kind of reflected on that is, you know, I said, okay, well, this, this did not end well. And I will forever have this on my conscience. I probably should have, we probably should have met much less, even though he wanted to meet, even though he was saying everything was fine in retrospect, it wasn't. But then 10 years later, I'm in Afghanistan and, and we're running an operation in which, uh, we're going after a Taliban member who was responsible for the deaths of two CIA officers two of my colleagues. So this is really personal for our base mm. and for the agency as a whole. And, and over time, and I was much more methodical at this point, I was the chief of the base, but 
you know, we, we recruited agents on the ground who was going to put what we call put, uh, put the Taliban member on the X uh, for, you know, U.S. military, you know, um, to, to, to do what they do. Um, so, but ultimately, I, I was much more patient. I remembered that failure um, from 10 years earlier, approximately 10 years earlier. Um, and ultimately, we ended up uh, taking this high value target, this Taliban member off the battlefield. And it was and, and later that night sitting around, you know, the, the you know, the fire pit, which we always call caveman TV uh, in, in Afghanistan because we were 6000 miles from home along the pac Afghan border. But we called via satellite phone totally, you know, unauthorized. And, uh, uh, you know, the agency knows now because they cleared my book. But I talk about it in the book. But we called the widow of uh, of one of the officers who was killed. And we told her that we avenged her husband's death. And so that was such a meaningful moment for us. But ultimately, my contention is. You know, we wouldn't have have had success in that operation if years earlier I hadn't um, I hadn't had that uh, you know that that episode where I, I really thought I failed. And so when I say adversity is the performance enhancing drug to success, it's a perfect ex- example. But but I think that uh, again, when and, and and putting this in perspective of okay, down the line when you're in a crisis situation where you have lack of situational awareness, if you know your team has has over has has been through bad stuff already, you have so much. It's pretty simple. You have more confidence in them. Mm. Um, you know, they're not going to fold. They're not going to cave when times are tough. They'll have gone through. They'll have grown. And so um, I think it's a, it's, it's a pretty universal principle that a lot of people will understand. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to see amongst your team how people cope in different ways, which then helps you figure out how to communicate better with those people, I suppose. Well, and, and better to, I mean, you want to, you know, they're battle tested. And this is not battle as in real war. It's, it's in any, it's in any field, but you're right. Mm. So, and, and if you know your, your team and individuals have, have you know, uh, have gone through certain, you know, t- uh, times of hardship, I mean, that, that's how you grow as a, as a human being. That's your super fuel. And so I would always, I would rather have someone who's failed before and then, you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps, learn from it, than someone who's never expect you know experienced failure. I'll tell you a, a perfect a, you know example is I as a CIA senior manager when I was very senior in my career, when we were we were holding job interviews for positions, the one question I would always ask whether I was running the interview panel or a member of it, and these are these are choosing really high performing uh, individuals, other senior officers. I would say, tell me a time where you failed. Mm-hmm. Amazingly enough, there were some people who said I, I can't think of that. And that would that would be it for me. They're crossed off the list. Um, that's not reality, but that also shows a lack of kind of self awareness, the lack of an ability to grow. Mm. And so, uh, uh, and again, that's that's the idea about about adversity, embracing that, and using it as your super fuel. Yeah, no, thank you for that. So, can you talk to us about the process monkey, sure. and especially in the business of espionage? This is quite important. <laughs> so, so, you know, quite simply, um, you know, I think the the easiest way to say is there there, there are no shortcuts. Mm. You know, you have to trust the process, and so in, in every in every line of work, there are going to be indispensable things that you have to do. Mm. So, you know, um, and, and God, we can we can think about in, in so many different. You know, if you're if you're a police officer in the United States, if you if you arrest someone, you have to read them their rights. You know, you have to do that. If you're a nurse in an emergency room, someone comes in, you have to take their blood pressure. I mean, they're just absolute fundamentals. And so, in the espionage business, uh, uh, for us, it was a, sur- a surveillance detection route. Um, let's say, let me just flip to the military. It's if you're a Navy SEAL, you got to know how to shoot someone. Sorry, you got to be able to shoot right. Mm-hmm. Not shoot somebody. You got to be able to know you know how to shoot and and be highly qualified. So in the espionage business, you know, for us, um, uh, uh, we called it a surveillance detection route. So that's when I'm running an agent, the ability for me to go to meet that individual, and I will take a lot of turns. Maybe I'll be in disguise. Maybe I'll switch vehicles. But it's a long, circuitous process 
in which I know nobody's following me because fundamentally, remember back when we talked about in the beginning, my job is to keep that person alive. Mm. So for us, it was a it was a surveillance detection route. But the process monkey is just the idea that that you know you know identify in your work unit um, kind of key fundamentals that you have to do because and here's my contention again when times are tough if you know your people even when there's a lack of situational awareness even there where where you think there's uh, you know um, you know you're you're in this kind of gray area but if you know your people have the fundamentals down and what you have to do you're gonna feel good about things mm. um, and so you know so for me you know and I, and I talk about in the book. A surveillance detection route I ran in, and it was in a North African country um, uh, where I had to go meet an agent who had some perishable information that the, the U.S. government really wanted. Um, everybody was excited about this, so off I go on my my surveillance detection route, and I'm in the Middle East. What happens? Murphy's Law hits, and then you have a lot of traffic, and I'm missing my timing hacks, my timing stops where I have to take certain turns, maybe put on a disguise or things like that. But ultimately. Because this is a fundamental uh, uh, process I have to do. Ultimately, I realize I can't execute the surveillance detection route to keep my my agent safe. So what do I do? I abort the meeting. I don't go to the meeting, and I come back into the CIA station. And my boss says to me, he "says All right, Mark, start writing." You know, Washington wants this stuff right away, and I'm like, "Couldn't make the meeting. Too much traffic. I missed all my stops." And the reaction of my boss was perfect. He said, "Got it," because that was a fundamental process. You know, you can't violate that. And so my contention, um, you know, for, for readers uh, 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 of the book, um, for your listeners is, um, you know, identify those those key processes. And it's, it's actually pretty easy to do in any work unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and just and, and a couple of things on that. Identify them, but make sure that every make sure you communicate those. Everybody knows these are the sacred things you have to do. Yeah, it's incredibly important because, yeah, being able to trust your teammates um is vital um you know especially with like again like in my experience with filming and stuff if um if every single person is not doing what they're supposed to focus on it all falls apart it's a bit like yeah. uh, also with formula one where they change the tires quickly every single person has a different role absolutely oh i mean if you could you could i could do a whole kind of uh, a podcast with you on how you know on how my book would could relate to f1 ultimately you know the the, the it's, it's, it's you know as, as you read the book you know there's a lot about about baseball in there you know one of my one of my favorite sports but but, you know, because, you know, there is actually a lot of similarities between sport and the intelligence business. Hmm. Um, uh, again, an F1 team, you know, pit stops, you know, or just, or just you know, getting, you know, nailing the pit stop. Hmm. That's, that's a process piece that you have to get right. You're not going to win a race. Yeah. And getting the right tires, too. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, can you talk to us about humility, uh, which sure. is best served warm? <laughs> so, so, you know, people have asked me in the past, just as an aside, you know, what, what's the biggest character trait or required one for, for an operations officer, for a CI officer? And I always talk about just the idea of being humble. And pe- many people are surprised by that. But again, it's such an unforbiz- unforgiving business. Mm. Um, but look, it's, it's my contention that, you know, great leaders really own their mistakes. It's really important and learn from them. And poor ones scapegoat, scapegoat and, and deflect and ultimately... For myself, when I was, you know, in, in, like, you know, we, we, we get a lot of training at CI. There's a selection process. You get training. You know, six out of 10 days, I would open up the Washington Post or the New York Times or I'd watch BBC or watch CNN. And something I'm doing is on the front page of every media outlet in the planet. So you got to be careful not to believe your own hype. Mm. Um, and so and, and, and because intelli- the intelligence business is so, uh, uh, you know, un- unforgiving and so. My idea is that to, you, you got to stay humble. It's it's just it's really important. Um, it's it's going to help prevent you from making poor decisions. Um, and you know, again, in, in the intelligence business, there's you know there's disaster around every corner. Even after you you might have had enormous success, and 
And I, and I tell a story in the book about, you know, I was running a counterterrorism unit um, in which we were really responsible for saving lives of, of not only Americans, but from our, our friends and allies as well against the threat of Al Qaeda. Um, uh, and and this was, you know, the, the, the process of, of finding and, and fixing, finding and locating Al Qaeda members. But and, and in one operation where there was a there was a U.S. military action based on intelligence we provided, you know, there was some civilian casualties, what we call CIVCAS. No one was killed. And there was, you know, it, it was, uh, it, you know, thank God. But but, you know, uh, and this is this is a terrible part of war. But it happened. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was called up to the, the seventh floor, our top floor of CIA headquarters to kind of explain what happened. And so I took a very deliberate tack. I went up there and I said, look, this is what happened. This is these are you know the four things that we did wrong, um, and by the way, this is on me. It's my res- I, actually I, I should have started. I led with this is on me. It's my responsibility as the leader of this unit. Um, these are the four things we did wrong, and these are the four things in the last twenty four hours we've done to fix this. And then I said, are there any questions? And I walk out of the room, and there's nothing. And I, I say to myself, oh, I'm I'm totally screwed here. Uh, you know, I'm going to get removed from this because we made a mistake. And and you know, civilian casualties, as you can you know you hear in the media all the time, is something that is that absolutely is is the last thing we want in any kind of uh, 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 operation. And, and a senior officer came up to me, came running down the hall, and he said, hey, that went really well. And I said, well, why? They didn't ask any questions. And he said, exactly, because you took responsibility for it, um, you owned it, uh, and then you said how you were going to fix it. And so he said, so the senior leadership of the CIA, including the director, actually believe in you now. That was really good. Mm. And so and so that's something. So hold that thought. Then I go down to my team, and I tell them what happened. And by the way, I didn't throw anybody under the bus. I took full responsibility for it. So, so I have buy-in from, from my, my bosses, but I have also have buy-in from those who I lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all based on this idea of being humble and, and owning mistake. And I think that's something that, that can be really helpful, uh, uh, you know, as you practice, you know, these principles of leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good one. That's a good one. Talk to us about winning an Oscar. <laughs> sure. So it's, it's, it's my contention. There's no day off as a leader ever. And so this is not the idea that you have to kind of, you know, be fake. Um, you have to be honest and empathetic and compassionate with people who, who you lead. But um, there, there's, you know, all eyes are going to be on you all the time. You know, there's never going to be, um, you know, a, a, a day off. And, and I learned that, you know, so many times the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the hard way. Um, I remember I was out on patrol, you know, I took, I was, so as the base chief in Afghanistan, I didn't always go out on patrol, um, you know, uh, with kind of our, our paramilitary officers, but occasionally I would because mm. I wanted to kind of to show that, you know, show the flag and also go visit maybe some Afghan units um, uh, around the border. Um, and so I got back from a 36 hour patrol one time. I was dead tired. I was hungry. And ordinarily in our mess hall, I would eat with everybody on my team. You know, so we had 20 Americans and a thousand indigenous per- Afghan indigenous personnel, but the 20 Americans um, were really important because that was a time I could talk about them, how they're doing. It's a year-long deployment. It's hard on families. Want to make sure they're healthy, they're exercising. I was dead tired, 36 hours. I was hungry. I remember I got bed bugs at a remote outpost. So I'm itching all over the place. I'm miserable. And I'm also, by the way, I'm, I think I'm like 43 at the time. So I'm getting old in the tooth and doing this stuff. Um, I, that's one of the reasons, like, at the end when I retired, I'm like, I can't fly on helicopters anymore. My back hurts. Um, <laughs> but but ultimately, I, I, I don't talk to anybody. I go sit by myself. And I, I had in my team some of the toughest SOBs on the planet, you know, veterans of everything from Black Hawk down to Tora Bora. Really, you know, these are special operations personnel who then joined the CIA and in, in our paramilitary side. And so ultimately, it was like I was in high school. They were like, oh, my God, Mark is mad at me. He's not talking to me. And I was like, what the heck? And I got irritated. But then as I kind of reflected on it, what I should have done coming back, I should have said, hey, 
um, you know, I'm tired. And so ordinarily I'm going to be, you know, really chatty. I'm just going to go take a knee, be by myself and, and, and I'll see you all later tonight. And, and I did explain this later on, but the base almost fell apart amongst the toughest people on the planet because I didn't win an Oscar that day, you know, it's because all eyes are on me um, all the time. And I, and I have so many other examples of that. You know, I was, I was, you know, I was in a U.S. facility once. It was, it, we, you know, we were subject to an attack um, by, uh, by, by Al Qaeda. You know, fortunately, a car bomb hit the back gate, didn't go off. So I'm here today talking to you about it. But I remember as we were breaking open the weapons safe um, and I'm, I'm, you know, my blood pressure, you know, my heart rate went from zero to 100 and I'm trying to spin the dial to get, get the weapons out. And as I'm passing out the weapons and trying to reassure people, you know, later on, someone had said to me, Mark, you looked so calm. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was scared to death. I thought we're going to die that day. But it was, but, but so for whatever reason, I had projected this sense of calm. Um, certainly I'm not bragging about it because I, I will tell you, you know, honestly, you know, uh, I was, I was terrified. Uh, but, but so, but that was really important again, because people always are looking at you. So, so winning an Oscar is just, just understanding that as a leader, all eyes are going to be upon you all the time. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it, that's a, that's a pretty big, you know, responsibility. I remember walking down the hall of CI headquarters one day and, uh, and being cognizant of this because the day before, and at this time I I was very senior in the organization. I had about a thousand people working for me and, and I was retiring and someone came up to me and said, Hey, good luck on, on your retirement. I said, thanks. It was really great working with you. And they, they said to me, I didn't think you liked me. And I said, why? He goes, cause you walked by in the hall and never said hi. And so just because why, because I was, I was dealing with personnel issues or budget problems or an operation went, went awry, hmm. but all eyes are on you all the time. So it really matters on how you, how you act. And so I just, I think that's a really important kind of notion to pass on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I usually, where it's appropriate when I'm starting a, a filming project, I like to give a little speech just before we kind of do the first shot and um, thank everybody in advance because one of the things I've noticed, um, especially on films, is people don't get thanked enough. Um, right. And so it's always good to thank people in advance and then hopefully it gets everybody like, oh, okay. And and um, one of my other problems, I'm really bad. It's part of my, I've got a dyslexia, so I'm really bad remembering names, especially under stress. And so I just like to rub, um, say to people, it's not personal. That's right. You know, it's a very intense day for me, and uh, and names, especially when it gets more intense, will go out the window, and it's nothing personal. Well, I mean, and think about by you doing this in advance, how important that is. Mm. Because maybe when you when you unfortunately have a bad moment, because we're all human, and you don't acknowledge someone as you should, they might think back saying, "Okay, you know, I, I heard that this is going to be intense. This might be the case." Now, mm. you know, I mean, everybody's human, and so so you know, you have to you have to understand that. But but I think just the the kind of the win an Oscar principle can serve you so well. And again, particularly in times of crisis where people are looking at you, um, just like to just kind of have that that sense of self awareness. That uh, you know, I always used to joke around with folks that you know, as a senior CI leader, you know, you know, if you want a friend, I said get a dog. <laughs> because, you know, just and so because it's 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 hard. Uh, uh, but ultimately, you know, I think if you practice this, uh, the idea of, uh, of winning an Oscar, you can have a lot of success. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. Can you talk to us about family values? You mentioned the fire pit before and stuff sure. like that. And, um, I, I, I can relate to that because when I'm sort of trying to relax after a busy day and stuff, I sometimes watch these YouTube log fires. It's become a new habit. of mine. <laughs> <laughs> No. So, so, you know, look, family values, it's, it's kind of a you know a silly catchy phrase i think it's used politically a long time ago in the united states hmm. so that wasn't my intention at all but it's it's just the, the notion that if you want you know men and women to follow you into battle or if, if you want men and women to follow you period um they got to believe in each other um and so you know you have to you have to foster that sense of, of brotherhood or sisterhood or, or and dare say i would even say that sense of 
of, of love. Mm. Uh, now you're not going to, now realistically, you're not going to like or love everybody you're working with, but that's not the point. Um, you know, especially at CIA. So, you know, internally we fight a lot, but then externally, if anyone ever attacks the organization, we all band together. Um, uh, but, but ultimately, ultimately it's, it's, it's fostering that, that kind of sense of team. And that for me as a leader was the most fun I had, you know, uh, you know, uh, just for years and years. And, and, and I, you know, I tell lots of stories about, about what different leaders in the book, I tell stories about what different leaders did for me. And I, and, I, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I, again, it's, it, it, this one was actually had a, had a kind of a profound effect. Um, you know, we came back from Iraq and I was, I was awarded the, uh, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, which is the agency's second highest operational award. Really big deal. And my dad was invited to CIA headquarters. Now I'm, I, I was born in Greece. Some of my dad was Greek. My mom's American, but, you know, Greece and the CIA, you know, uh, don't have a really kind of pleasant history. <laughs> and so, you know, in the mid 70s, the U.S. government, you know, and via some of the things the CIA did supported the junta, the Greek right wing government. Um, and so so people in Greeks really never forgot that because of kind of the you know autocratic, anti-democratic tendencies that, that that kind of flowed. And so my father, even though he moved to America, was never a fan of, of the CIA and kind of was 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 bitter about my career choice. Now, my my retort to him was like this happened you know 50 years ago but it doesn't matter so ultimately um, I'm getting this big award my dad is 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 coming to the ceremony and the CIA director at the time was George Tenet who is Greek I mean he speaks fluent Greek born in America but Greek parents you know I think his, his parents had a, a diner in Long Island mm-hmm. um, and so he's as Greek as it gets and we, I knew him because you know the, the kind of the, what do we call it? the Greek mafia the Greek Americans who work at CIA <laughs> And so, but I, but before the ceremony, I asked him, I said, would you mind, you know, Mr. Director, very formal with him, you know, speaking to my father because he had reservations about, about uh, the agency. And so George Tennant took 15 minutes out of his day because he took my dad aside after the ceremony and I, and they spoke in Greek together. And afterwards, my dad had tears in his eyes. And I said, what did you talk about? And he said, I, I won't tell you. And then later on, I, I, I saw the director and I said, you know, if you don't mind me asking, what did you say? And he said, I told your dad you were a hero. And so, and so ultimately it's the idea that this is a leader who took the time to do something really personal for me. And, and the, the funny part of the story now is and when I, you know, I talked to my dad, I'm like, so dad, you know, like, you know, what do you think of the CIA? He goes, well, I still don't like the organization, but, but Georgetown, it's okay. You got a very good direction. <laughs> so, but, but it, it, I mean, it was so easy. So, I mean, you know, this is 15 minutes out of someone's day who had a really profound effect um, mm. on, on me and my family. And so that's the idea of family values of, of just, of, you know, having that sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. And, and you can foster that in teams. You make it, you, if you make an active effort, it's, it's a, it's quite easy to do. And frankly, it's, it's sitting around the fire pit in Afghanistan. It's going to your local pub. Um, you know, my, my, the team I was, you know, I led in Afghanistan, you know, we got back in 2012. Um, it's 2021. Now we still gather uh, at, a, at a local establishment here in Northern Virginia once a year altogether. These are really important things and times um, uh, because you have these intense experiences with each other. But again, promoting, promoting this kind of team, think about the the whole premise of the book. When times are tough, if you know, you have a team that believes in each other, you're going to have a lot more faith in them. And so it's, it's a pretty easy concept to to understand, grasp and and execute. Yeah. And, and, Technically, we spend more time with people we work with than we do our own family. So, of course, yeah. you know, life's for living, and you want it to be a pleasant environment, don't you? You know, it's, well, and, and no I, matter I, what you I do, mean, when people have that sense of camaraderie, they perform better. Mm. You know, it's it's pretty easy. And then there's one other part of this too that's worth worth uh, worth worth mentioning. There's always going to be conflict in any kind of team environment, but if you have 
mechanisms where you can gather by the fire pit at a local pub. I don't care, you know, at some kind of round table. That's how you work things out. That's how a team will lay things, put things on the table and work things out. That's what a family does. Mm. Um, and so that's why I think I, I really like that, that concept. I think I, I, you know, I certainly solved a lot of kind of intra team dynamics over really informal settings like that. Yeah, no, fantastic. Well, the next value, um, which again, I think is a very important one. I think they're all very important, but this one in particular is very important too. being a people developer. Can you talk to us about this? So just, it's the idea, look, never stop teaching, you know, pass the torch. I mean, so, so, you know, I, I, I certainly learned this much more at the end of my career. Uh, but ultimately, you know, all the things that I am going to be that we as leaders, but I'm talking about myself, because when I wrote the book is that, how am I going to be remembered? Now I, I can go down. If you want to come over to the house one day, you can come across the pond. I'll take it downstairs to the basement. I got a lot of shiny, you know, actually not shiny, dusty metals. I had a hell of a career mm. and there's operations that I ran, led, you know, executed, which, which helped shape history. I'm really proud of that. Mm. But guess what? Nobody cares. So I'll sit there with my scotch and be proud of myself. But mm. what are people really going to remember me by? It's going to be leadership. It's going to be about teaching leadership, teaching, uh, uh, you know, the next generation, passing that torch. And, you know, I did a book signing, um, uh, you know, in Northern Virginia when my book came out in June and, you know, a, a former officer of mine came and he actually, I didn't talk to him. It was crowded. It was wonderful. But he spoke to my son and he said, Hey, you know, Mark was the best leader I ever had because he taught me how to do some things I'm, I'm doing now because he's a station chief now. And, and later on, when my son told me that, I'm like, there it is. Mm. That's it. Um, because that's, that's what really matters is, is passing the torch um, to the, uh, uh, to the, to the next generation. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that I would do in some, uh, bases or stations where I was a, where I was a leader is, you know, I would, I would let kind of the junior officers have that opportunity to run a station or base for maybe a 24 hour period. So for example, if I was not leaving a country, you know, I'm still the, the, the chief yeah. of that CI facility. So maybe I'm traveling within, but I would say, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to another, uh, uh, you know, city. Um, and so, you know, John, Susan, you know, whoever it is, the other case, a junior case officer, hey, you're going to run this place for 24 hours. And they'd be like, what? That's crazy. I'm like, actually, it's not because you because I, I have faith in you and, and, and you're going to you're going to you're going to do just fine. And I remember jumping on a helicopter one time and flying off. And one of the officers said to me, hey, hey, boss, um, hey, chief, that's what they call it. That's the CIA lingo. If you want some inside scoop. <laughs> hey, chief, I'm going to hold down the fort. And I'd be like, and, and I this is this is not what I'm going to tell you now is not recommended. I grabbed him by his shirt, though. So you shouldn't do that. And I looked him right in the face and I said, absolutely not. You're going to make every decision in 24 hours. I want to come back and we're going to hit the ground running. But no, you know, you know don't hold down the fort. Make the decisions. And he looked at me with these huge eyes. Um, incidentally, that's the same officer who came to my book signing I just told you about. And he said that really helped. It gave him confidence. So why does people be a people developer matter? Because, again, when you when when the crap hits the fan and these times of ambiguity, uh, 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 lack of situational awareness, um, you know, when you're in that when you're in that place um, uh, where there's a lot of confusion, if you know you've developed leaders within your team, even if they work for you, that's going to give you enormous confidence. Because what's going to happen? Sometimes things maybe maybe communication goes awry. Maybe there's something with the leader, you know, in, in any in any uh, uh, you know uh, private or public sector um, job. Maybe some things happen where where you know communication is off. Um, you know you've taught these people. Um, you know, how to lead. And so it's just going to make um, kind of for, for a better output, you know, particularly in times of, uh, of, of crisis. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you again, at the end of my, at the end of my career, I think the, the thing I'm most proud of is that a whole bunch of officers who worked for me in the past, 
are now station chiefs. And, and frankly, it will be better than me. That's good. That's just fine. Yeah. Um, but the fact that I can help groom the next generation, that I'm really proud of that. And so that's, I think, be a people developer is a, is a principle everyone can really embrace. Yeah, it's a good one. Now, the next one, when I first saw this in the uh, index, is like, employing the dagger. This sounds like you're about to give somebody uh, what we call a big bollocking. But um, can you talk to us about what employing the dagger actually is? So it's 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 simply well you know you remember the old uh, uh, what was it uh, movie uh, Wall Street with Michael Douglas when he said greed is good and everyone got really upset about it. <laughs> well, it's not that, but it's it's similar in the sense of competition is good. So so don't be scared of that word competition. Mm. Um, it's good. It's healthy. It's how everybody rises up. And so and and I, and I think that you know we shouldn't be scared of of saying you know uh, uh, of saying that. And so employ the dagger literally is when I was you know running a, a CIA base or station, there would be an operational success. I would run out and buy a whole bunch of cheap little daggers on the market in the Middle East for ten dollars each, um, and I would give them to an officer who did something. You know now so this is not a promotion. It's not a big award. Mm-hmm. It's something. It's very informal. There's no there's no record of it. But what I found was all the case officers in the station, the operations officers, would have this wild competition to get these things. Mm. And so it, it really fostered this incredible sense of camaraderie, but really healthy competition. And don't be scared of that. And so I think that's, you know, that's 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 something that I, I employed effectively and that that really was successful. Um, you know, one of the other things I used to do is I used to I used to have what, what's called a stand up morning meeting. Uh, again, this is the idea of promoting competition. It's employing the dagger. So, so what I would do is instead of you know asking or a, instead of telling someone what to do, I would gather all the case officers around. Let's say there's ten officers there, or maybe it doesn't even have to be case officers. It could be different job categories. But I say, what did you do yesterday? Or what did you do last night? How did you better the station or the base today? Mm-hmm. And when and people would go around the room and tell me, not only telling me by the way, telling because everyone else is hearing this. What did you do to help that that you you know the uh, you know further kind of the output of the unit, and it, and you know that that fosters so many you know kind of interesting dynamics. Number one is I don't I'm not I'm not putting someone on the spot by by talking to them. I'm letting them explain if they're pulling their weight or not. But number two, their peers also all see this as well. And so you know, look, sometimes people have stuff in life. So maybe someone says, you know, it was my son's birthday. I didn't go out last night. Okay, fine. But, you know, if you see that behavior, you know, behavior repeated, you're going to have it's going to be pretty obvious on on who is, uh, uh, you know, who's who's pulling their weight or not. But again, it's the idea that competition is healthy. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, that's that's really important. And, um, you know, it's a, it's something that we should not be be afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. Who is it? There's a funny story in that chapter about um, I think he's a local interpreter who, okay. who you asked to go and get all these daggers. Oh, that's right. So I, 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 I do remember his name. I won't say it, but. I remember I, I went to him and, I, and maybe I did say it in the book, but I went to him and I said, "Hey, can you go out and get a whole bunch of uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of daggers?" But just I said, "Find the cheapest thing on the market." And he looked at me and he said, "He was like, I don't think we really want to use these. Like he thought it was going to be like some kind of like lethal tool or something like that." I'm like, "No, what are you talking about?" I said, "We're going to give him his gifts." He's like, "Oh, okay, got it." <laughs> like, the CIA is so cheap that we're going out buying ten dollar daggers for a uh, kinetic operation. No, we don't do those things, but. <laughs> it was really funny, and ultimately, this this individual was really important to us. And he and I ended up giving him one as well, so he was really proud of it. I hope he's glad. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! That's brilliant. Um, so we're on the the last concept, which right. is about finding clarity in shadows. Can you talk to us about this? Sure. It's it's so so. This is the the last kind of uh, principle, and it's the idea of putting everything that I just talked about, the other eight together. 
Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, you know, ultimately it's when you, you, you know, you fundamentally realize you put these eight building blocks together, um, and you are able to exactly what it says is find clarity in the shadows. It's all going to, all this leadership is going to make sense to you. And you're going to be the ones, you know, who say, you know, as, as everyone else is kind of in a panic, you're like, actually I'm feeling pretty good right now Mm. because why, because what did I do? I have my glue guys and glue gals, Mm. you know? We've gone through adversity. There's processes we know that, you know, we just we've nailed these. Uh, the, the team is really tight, family values, um, and we've developed everybody in the team. So so I give an example of this um, in which I had actually come back uh, from uh, from Afghanistan and my ba- my team was still on the ground there in Afghanistan and South Asia. And they were trying they, they were they were they were uh, 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 car- trying to carry out a high value target um, operation, which. Our job was to find and fix to locate the high value target. Mm. This was a really bad Taliban member, and ultimately we passed the information off to the U.S. military. And from head, so I'm sitting at headquarters. I get called down to the special operations center, and they say everything's a disaster out there. We don't know what's going on. You know, there's there, the communications are different. The ISR are kind of surveillance platforms. We can't see anything. It's a mess. I don't know if we can do this. And afterwards, and I kind of got briefed in on the and what was happening, and I kind of thought about it a little bit. And they said, "What do you think we should do?" And I said, "That this is easy." Go ahead, let them execute it. And they're like, "Are you crazy? Like all these things have gone wrong." But I, but I, as I, as I thought about it, I was like, "Well, actually, no," because I trusted the people on the ground, mm-hmm. you know. So I knew our officers. I knew the agent, you know, the 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 spy who was giving us location in, information. I'd actually met this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the team had been together for an entire year. I had just left, and so all these all the principles kind of were coming together. And a senior officer said to me, "It was amazing." He said, "You know, Mark, if you're wrong, this is your career." And I was like. Ah, what the hell? Who cares? Yep, let's let's do it anyway. I, I recommend we do it. They executed the operation; it was successful. We took a really bad guy off the battlefield, and afterwards, um, you know, someone asked me. They said, I, "I can't believe you were so willing to make that that decision." I said, "Well, it was really clear to me, hmm. and that really was the you know, and that was the emphasis or, or the impetus." You know, a couple of years later, of actually writing the book because I was like, "Why was it so easy for me to make that decision?" It's not because I was better than anybody else. But I just, I just even unknowingly at the time put together these principles, and so it, again, it's it's the notion of, uh, of of putting everything together mm-hmm. and, and making decisions under under crisis, and and then you know what an amazing thing to have the ability to do when times are tough if you're actually feeling differently than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my contention, and uh, and and that's why I think the principles are important. But I think it will it'll help. Certainly help folks in, in all walks of life. You know what? My my stepbrother's an ER doctor, emergency room doctor in Brooklyn, New York. He's gone through hell with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, treated treated you know uh, uh, hundreds of patients. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and you know he's he's actually you know he's, he has the book and he's shown it um, to, to to folks in the ER. And I think they've kind of embraced this completely. All the different principles. So that yeah, makes me really. Yeah, well, can you talk to us a little bit about um, how we can apply some of these principles and finding clarity during the age of COVID? Well, sure. I mean, so you know, this is this is something that uh, uh, it's, it's it's hard. It's not hard, but you know, every everything with COVID is political. So, mm-hmm. as, and I wrote in, in, in the epilogue of the book, the, I, the, the book was finished, and Harper Collins came back to me and said, "You got to do a, a, a chapter on COVID." And I was like, "Oh, okay, this is going to be not. Di- it's actually easy." But it's difficult because everything is political with this. But mm. but you know I mean you know let's just you know if if you think about a principle such as win an Oscar, well you know who, what leaders do we have in the United States or or anywhere in the world who can get up in front of the camera and reassure people? So I would say just right off the bat, it's Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci. Mm. But then the right wing will go bananas that I've mentioned this. But you know and the, and the left will be cheering. But 
the principle would be still, this is a health professional who is getting up there and explaining things to us. Mm. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's really important. You know, you could think of things like, you know, the process monkey, what's the process of it? Well, it would be testing. I think, you know, maybe that's, is, but, but again, we're going to get into politics. So for God's sakes, but, but I think fundamentally a way to battle COVID, particularly if you're in the private sector is you could say two things. You could say, maybe you ensure that your, your, your people are all vaccinated or, and, or ensure that there is, you know, constant availability of testing because that will help you kind of get through. And so I think that the principles are, are, are certainly uh, uh, applicable. Um, and then, you know, adversity is the P D to success. You know, we've lost 700,000 Americans. So there's been a hell of a lot of adversity um, uh, on this. And, uh, and so ultimately I think it, you know, you can, you can make very strong cases with it, but, but everything with COVID becomes political. And so, uh, you know, I, I get attacked by all sides. Um, if I, you know, one of the, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story on winning an Oscar during the, during the, uh, it's, uh, it's actually not funny, but, but during the pandemic, you know, uh, New York, former New York governor, Mario, uh, not Mario, uh, 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 governor Andrew Cuomo was being lauded in the, in the U S media for, um, giving these press conferences. Right. Mm. So we, I write about it in the draft in the book, not mentioning what, but then of course there's this huge scandal yeah. with, with when he's forced to resign. So HarperCollins is like, they, they didn't tell me, but they wrote to me. They said, you might want to take him out as an example. And I was like, that's a good thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, my last question. Um, so reflecting on your book, it crossed my mind uh, and it made me wonder about double agents. And I've read a lot about people who betrayed, you know, their various agencies. And one of the key thing that stands out often, but not always, is the person feels uh, the person felt underappreciated in their work? So, do you think there are any national security implications for bad leadership? Well, of course there are, because you know. So, my job as a case officer was to assess other people people's motivations to spy for the United States government. Now, during the Cold War, that was you know communism versus capitalism. So maybe a Soviet official would want to spy for us mm. uh, because for ideological reasons. Yes. But but in kind of this new age now, so you, there there are different motivations, and 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 sometimes it's it's because people, you know, let, um, I'm talking about an Iranian nuclear scientist, mm. um, you know, maybe a Pakistani, you know, military officer. But ultimately, you know, it's it's uh, a lot of times the motivations would be that they were not treated well by their parent organization, and then and you know and you know those feelings are pretty profound, and they can lead people to actually want to betray their countries, mm. and so. Just, but, but so then you, you, you put it on top of what we're talking about now, you know, there's a price to pay for bad leadership. Um, you know, and so, so I think you're, you're hundred percent right. And I'll tell you that, that one of the things that we see in exit interviews that, that when I was there at CIA, um, of, of officers, so I'm of a, I'm of a generation, you join the agency, you know, it's like the Roach Motel, you know, you're never leaving. Um, so, so my whole career was there and so many of my contemporaries served 20 plus years there. It's just, it was, it was, again, but younger generations are not like that. And when we do exit interviews with officers who've left at about the five-year mark, they, the number one reason for leaving is poor leadership. Mm-hmm. And so, and again, that, that, that makes me angry, but it also inspires me to, to talk and, and do these kind of things. Um, uh, because look, you know, the, the age of you know, when I joined the CIA or, you know, not a thing on any, any kind of, you know, country's militaries, but the age of that kind of rigid kind of military hierarchy that, you know, younger generation that don't it doesn't cut cut it for them now. And so, um, you know, I think leadership's really important. And if we want to retain a workforce, 
you have to have great leadership. And then I would agree with you if we want to protect ourselves from people who are get upset enough to betray our country. Um, you know, leadership is a is something because we can control this. Mm. And so I think that's really important. Silly question, but um, this has been an ongoing theme in uh, in the, in my podcast over the years. Of um, t- you talk about retaining people. Um, yep. Why is retaining people in the CIA important? Well, a couple of reasons. One is is is, is you, you get better with experience, mm. um, and so you know, you know, so so when you you go through training, um, you go on your first operational tour, second operational tour, like you eventually get really good later in your career because you've had all these different experiences. One of the things that I always I always found was that that, that the mid mid to later parts of my career, when I was overseas somewhere and something happened, and I reacted properly, it's not because I was smarter than anyone. It's because well, I've experienced this before, yeah. and and I and I and I saw it done one way or the other. Maybe it was the right way, or the wrong way, and then I knew how to react. There was very rarely anything that happened to me mm. at, at all um, at the end of my career that I hadn't ha- I hadn't had seen before, and that's really important in how you you know make good good decisions. So so there's the experience factor. You know, uh, you know, seasoned operations officers are better at recruiting, at agent handling, mm. at, at handling crises. Number one, and then. Um, uh, uh, but but number two, it's expensive. You know, I mean, you know, it takes a hell of a lot of money to train an operations officer. You're talking about selection to training. You're making it through all sorts of of, of boards and and you know uh, you know places where they would weed folks out. So so ultimately, um, you know, you want to keep uh, uh, the, the, those individuals who, uh, who you paid a lot of money to to, to bring on board. Um, and so I think that you know that's uh, that, that that's 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 pretty important. Retention is a really big issue for us because yeah. um, again. You know, if we if we've if we've brought you on, we've trained you as an operations officer, we sent you for two years of Arabic training. If you leave after a couple of years, like that's that's not good. Mm. Yeah, because one of the one of the things that comes up often um, with some interviews I've done is um, the institutional memory and sort of being able to um, kind of like uh, pass on knowledge from past experiences and and pass it on to new people. And there seems to be in the UK, at least from what I've heard is um, with regards to dealing with Russia, because we focus so much on Al-Qaeda for so long that we kind of right. got a bit rusty with dealing with Russia and some of the people who are experts on it have passed on and and suddenly like people are scratching their heads going, how do we deal with Russia? <laughs> so it's, you know, you're, you're 100% right. And, you know, if you, I remember, you know, times, uh, and, I, and I wasn't a Russia expert. I, was, I certainly was much more knowledgeable on, on the Middle East. But mm. in this case, it was dealing with Syria and the Syria conflict went on forever. Mm. But there was, you know, there were certainly times where, um, you know, later in my career, something would pop up on Syria and you would say, yes, yes, yes. But I remember 10 years ago, you know, this happened or that happened. Mm. And so, you know, th- there is there is no substitute um, for having that, you know, that that matter of, of expertise over the years. And so it, even even in the sense of, Okay, so so if you're if you work China or you work Russia or you work Syria, that means you have a historic knowledge of the intelligence services of those countries, mm-hmm. and so that's really important as well as we as we go through our our kind of you know our, our battle in um, trying to uh, you know penetrate those governments. Mm-hmm. Um, having that institutional knowledge is enormous. A lot of times, unfortunately, in intelligence organizations, there's a lot that's not written down, and just having you know what's in the back of your head can be really important. And then again, that's passing on. To the to the next generation as well, and so you know, I'd like to see you know one of the things that that's been a bit controversial in the U.S. intelligence community. So we've gone from we went from a time of being regional of a specialist to then becoming more of a generalist, and now I think there's a tilt more to going back towards specialization where an officer can work Russia, China, or, or the Middle East for their entire career, and I think that's 
I think we should go back to that mm. um, because uh, uh, you know that's 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 where uh, you know I, I think that's where we're gonna get, kind of get get the most bang for the buck out of officers. Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget. You know, I was in the Middle East one time, and um, Nancy Pelosi came to visit. I love telling this story. Um, and she was Speaker of the House uh, at, at the time, and and she got there, and, and and we had a brand new ambassador, and she went to them. She said, "Okay, who can I? How am I going to get smart on what's going on here?" And the ambassador said, well, go talk to Mark. He's the deputy station chief. He's the smartest one in this country. And I was really proud of that because, you know, that's what I want a CIA officer to be. You know, you, you know more about the country, the people, the language, religion. You're in the streets all the time. You're not stuck at the embassy or the U.S. military base. Um, and you just do that over time for years and years in different locations. And then you end up having this incredible regional expertise um that that's that's invaluable and and so losing folks like that or not being able to build that kind of cadre um i think is going to hurt us yeah yeah definitely well mark thank you so much for your time is there anything else you'd like to add any final thoughts before we wrap up no i, I just I, it's it's uh, it was it was great being here the my book uh, clarity in crisis is uh, is available on amazon yeah i i you can follow me on twitter i'm at at m polymer uh p-o-l-y-m-e-r it's a it's a kind of crazy compilation of all sorts of things from sports to a little bit of politics, a little bit of espionage, a lot on dive bars and uh, chicken wings and cheap, you know, cheap bar food. It's, it's, it's fun. Um, and then my, the, I, I do have a website. It's markpolymeropolis.com. Uh, and, uh, and that's also where, you know, I, I talk a lot about the leadership principles and, and I do a lot of public speaking as well. So um, it's been awesome. It great chat today. I enjoyed this and, and thanks for, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. Thank you so much today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.